0: Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host.
1: I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy.
0: Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only
2: show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Happy New Year. We're excited to be entering our fifth year of sports business radio in 2009. Can you believe it? An exciting show coming up on this, the best of sports business radio. In segment three, we're going to look back on our conversation with Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. In segment four, we're going to look back on our conversation with Michael Slive. He's the commissioner of the SEC. He was also the commissioner of the BCS. So with the BCS games upon us, we thought it'd be interesting to really look in depth with two key decision makers from the world Of college sports. I hope you enjoy those conversations. A couple of other notes visit my sports business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm joined in studio by my producer, Bobby Corser. Several NFL coaches fired this week. And Bobby, you are a diehard Detroit Lions fan. The Lions finish 0 16. They have now set the standard for the worst of the NFL
0: ever what do you have to say for yourself and your team you know what I'll be a Lions fan to the day I die but you know what they made the right move Marinell is a great coach but he had to go yeah
2: and it's going to be interesting because there's a lot of musical chairs that are going to take place this off season in the NFL front office ranks not only with coaches but with GMs with presidents CEOs lots of shuffling going on we've seen some teams the Falcons the Dolphins turn things around in a relatively short amount of time. And I think owners are getting uh, more impatient by the year because they say, hey, look, these teams went in, they turned things around quickly. If I go out and find the right team, the right coach, the right GM, the right president to run my football operations, like a Bill Parcells, he may be on the market again. And we'll tell you about that. Things could turn around quickly. So this is going to be a very interesting offseason in the NFL and we'll be watching it closely. We've got other headlines coming up. And then, like I said, segment three, Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Segment four, Michael Slive, the commissioner of the SEC. Florida playing in the national championship game. They are from the SEC. Slive also was the commissioner of the BCS before giving up that title this year. That's coming up next. You're listening to the best of sports business radio, Happy New Year. We'll talk to you next week. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs, Themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit SportsBusinessRadio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with
0: Brian Berger.
2: It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline. Sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit WarsawCenter.com for more information. Headline number one. Three NFL head coaches lost their jobs the day after the season ended on Monday. After the surprising success of the Dolphins, Falcons, and Ravens with first-year head coaches, the pressure in today's NFL to win now will only increase, and NFL owners are not hesitant to make a move. Monday, three NFL teams handed out peak slips, with Woody Johnson dumping Eric Mangini as the coach of the Jets. Randy Lerner, the owner of the Browns, cleaned house in Cleveland with both GM Phil Savage and head coach Romeo Cornell being dismissed. And then in Detroit, William Clay Ford began the major rebuilding process after an 0-16 and season by firing Rod Marinelli. But the biggest story in this offseason for the front office could be the big tuna, Bill Parcells. Interesting clause in his contract. When he signed on as the Dolphins' president of football operations, he has a four-year contract. He signed it last December, and it allows him to walk away if owner Wayne Huizenga ever sells the team. This is according to ESPN's Chris Mortensen. Huizenga has agreed to sell 95% of the team to co-owner Stephen Ross. He's a New York City developer. But Parcells' contract specifically states... Only Haizenga can be an authority over him. Once Ross officially becomes the owner, Parcells has to notify Ross within 30 days that he intends to exercise his walkaway clause and collect the full balance of $9 million cash and carry. Then Parcells would become a free agent. I don't know who Bill Parcells' agent is, Bobby, but whoever negotiated this contract for him is brilliant because, obviously... Heizenga and Parcells have a bond. He only wanted to work for Heizenga. He may continue to work for the Dolphins, but having this clause in his contract, having the ability to walk away with $9 million and then go sign a new contract somewhere else where he can work for someone who he also has a close bond with and get more money, this reminds me of like one of those Larry Brown contracts where you work for a year and, you know, he did an amazing job this year. Let's not shortchange Tony Sperano, the coach of the Dolphins. But the decisions that Bill Parcells has made, he took the Dolphins from 1-15, worst team in the NFL, to 11-5 and in the playoffs. Biggest turnaround in NFL
0: history. It is. And, you know, I want to know where can I hire this guy because, you know, my contract with you is pretty solid and I love the benefits of working for the show, but... Hey, if you ever leave, i got to know that I'm going to be rewarded somehow. Well, the Jets, the Lions, the
2: Browns, and the Raiders are among the teams reportedly interested in Parcells if he leaves the Dolphins. Watch this story closely. Very interesting. Our next headline, the New York Yankees signed first baseman Mark Teixeira to an eight-year, $180 million deal. Teixeira was one of the most sought-after free agents on the market this offseason. His agreement includes a $5 million signing bonus and a full no-trade provision. The deal gives the Yankees control of the four biggest contracts in Major League Baseball. In addition to Teixeira, they have Alex Rodriguez, who has a 10-year, $275 million contract. Derek Jeter, who has a 10-year, $189 million contract. And CC Sabathia, also signed by the Yankees this offseason. He has a seven-year, $161 million contract. Now, something that's interesting is, even with all of these signings, the Yankees are projected to have a lower payroll in 2009 than they had in 2008, because, because some of their big salaries, like Jason Giambi, came off the books. The other thing that's interesting is, the Yankees will have a lot more revenue coming in, because they're moving into a new $1 billion stadium, so... They're paying less money for payroll. They have more revenues coming in. That's why they're able to spend the amount of money that they've spent this offseason. They were just hit with a bill for $26.9 million for exceeding the uh, payroll, and that's the luxury tax that they're paying. But let me just tell you this. Just because you spend a lot of money, as we saw with the Yankees last year, who had a $200 million-plus payroll, doesn't mean that you win. Look at the New York Knicks. Look at the Dallas Cowboys if you need more proof. Our next headline, the NHL. Boy, the league has fallen on hard times, but the Phoenix Coyotes may be the first team in their league to fold. They are projected to lose another $30 million or more this year. They can't spend any money without league approval. And there's even word, sources are saying, that the league is providing financial assistance to keep the Coyotes alive in the form of advances on the franchise's share of league revenues. This is bad news. We talked on our year-end show about what leagues, what sponsors, what teams will be in big trouble. Put the Phoenix Coyotes at the top of the list in 2009, and they're probably not the only NHL team that's going to fall on hard times In 2009, we'll watch this story. Our last headline of the week. The Roger Clemens Institute for Sports Medicine, which opened in January of 2007, will no longer carry the embattled pitching great's name. The Memorial Hermann Hospital Healthcare System announced this past week that Clemens' name will be removed effective immediately as the fallout from the Mitchell Report continues to haunt the winner of 354 major league games and seven Cy Young Awards. The facility will be renamed the Memorial Herman Sports Medicine Institute. More bad news for Roger Clemens. Yes, you're innocent until proven guilty, but as we've said many times on this show, Roger Clemens has not been transparent. He has not been forthcoming, and in the court of public opinion, he certainly looks guilty. All right, coming up in our next segment on this, the best of sports business radio, you're going to hear from our past conversation with Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. If you've always wondered about the inner workings of the NCAA, you're going to want to tune into this conversation. Then in segment four, we're going to talk with Michael Slive. He is the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. He was the commissioner of the BCS for the last two years. We will talk to him about the inner workings of the BCS, I think one of the most flawed systems in all of sports today. That's coming up next, segments three and four. You're listening to the best of Sports Business Radio. Happy New Year.
0: <laughs> or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. One on one with those making the big time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business, Radio. Sports Business Radio.
2: My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. He's the former president at the University of Oregon and Indiana University. Dr. Brand, thanks so much for joining me.
1: My pleasure.
2: So in a nutshell, you know, there's some people out there who don't know specifically what the NCAA does. They're not intimately involved with what you do on a day-to-day basis. In a nutshell, can you briefly describe for those people what the NCAA
1: is all about? Sure. The, the NCAA is a membership organization. Uh, our job is to represent the over 1,000 universities and colleges with respect to their sports programs. But we only have the powers that are granted to us by our member institutions. We are not a professional league. I am not a professional commissioner. I am not the czar of college sports. Rather, we have certain uh, obligations in terms of enforcement and setting up rules about academic uh, eligibility and so on, but only as our members ask us to do it.
2: So it's not really top-down. It's really uh, bottom-up is what you're telling me.
1: Yeah, you're right. It it is a bottom-up organization. We have incredibly many committees and participating uh, people on each of our campuses. It's a a membership-run organization.
2: And how many student-athletes are there approximately? I know there's a few hundred
1: thousand, correct? Yeah, you're right. Right now, we count about 380,000 in all three divisions. Wow. You know, you've done such an impressive job during your
2: tenure at improving the graduation rates for student-athletes. From what I'm reading, they're actually better than those of of regular students. Can you talk about that and how you've been able to make that improvement?
1: Yeah, That's that's a very important point you raise, Brian. Uh, Most people who follow sports fail to realize that college athletes graduate at higher rates than the general student body, that on average they come in with better SAT scores and GPA scores. Um, They are... Graduating in every demographic group higher than the general student body. For example, African American male basketball players in Division One graduated higher rates, approximately five percent, which is a lot um, over the African American male general student body. Um, we don't give enough credit to the academic achievements of our student athletes.
2: What have you done to improve these graduation rates? Because again, you know, during your tenure, they've improved substantially.
1: Well, I I appreciate you pointing to me, but of course, it was the work of many, including many of the university presidents. Uh, What what we're all concerned with is making sure that student-athletes come into the university eligible and to have the ability to graduate. We don't want anyone on campus who doesn't have the experience and the ability to graduate. Once they get to campus, then they have to make progress towards a degree. They have to make 20% progress towards a degree each year, or they're ineligible to play. Uh, moreover, we're holding teams accountable for the success, academic success of their students. So, for example, if a team doesn't do well uh, academically, we'll take away scholarships, and we have been doing that for a couple of years now, and we're beginning to look at taking away opportunities to participate in the postseason, such as the Final Four.
2: See, I think that's the big thing that separates you from your predecessors, if I may say, is you know, now there's accountability and if you don't get it done in the classroom, you're gonna be accountable and you're gonna lose the things that you just described. Let's talk a moment about the BCS. What are your thoughts on the BCS? And let me premise this question. In Division Two II and Three College Football, there's a playoff system. The NCAA men's basketball tournament, my favorite event. There's not a playoff system for division one college football. We see bowl games. What are your thoughts on how it's working?
1: Yeah, that, that again is a very important question. Just let me preface it by saying that that the NCAA has no role to play in Division One A football, either in the regular season or in the postseasons. That's run uh, by the conferences and their members, as as well as the third parties, the bowls. Now, having said that, I do have an opinion, and I think the reason why we have a BCS type system uh, in Division One A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in division 1a feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football they want to uh, listen to the fans and have a championship game and we're all looking forward to that in january but they really want to emphasize the regular season you know i enjoy the basketball tournament too like you i think is the greatest event in all of sports uh, But that makes basketball somewhat of a tournament sport. If you read the sports pages, we're already talking about who's going to make the NCAA. Whereas when you read the sports pages about football, we're talking about regular season, like the Ohio State-Michigan game. So there's a difference in the focus on the regular season in 1A football, and that's what the BCS tries to capture.
2: So are you telling me, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of that answer that the NCAA doesn't set the plan for the college football season. Is that the university president and the BCS working directly together without the assistance or input of the NCAA? Is that how it works?
1: That's exactly how it works. Um, be- because of a court case in the 1980s, uh, the NCAA was taking, taken out of postseason football, and uh, that's been the case ever since.
2: My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. You know, I know earlier this week, Dr. Brand, you sent a 25-page reply to the House Ways and Means Committee in response to the pointed eight-page letter that you received from Bill Thomas, who's a Republican from California. He was the outgoing chairman of Congress's chief tax writing panel. Can you tell me why the NCAA should remain a nonprofit with tax-exempt status, even though, from what I've read, the NCAA generated uh, 4.2 billion dollars last year? That's
1: a lot of money. Yeah, the expenditure rate was about seven and three quarters billion dollars, and it's supported uh, by means other than uh, the generated revenue. Uh, the main reason, the underlying fundamental reason, why intercollegiate athletics is tax-exempt is because it's part and parcel of higher education. It is not a standalone for-profit enterprise like the professional leagues, the NFL and the NBA, which are making profits for their owners, whether they're shareholders or individuals. The NCA is just a membership organization that oversees intercollegiate athletics on behalf of a part of higher education, just like the chemical societies and the philosophy societies oversee their disciplines as part of higher education so we do too for our part but it's all part of higher education it is not separate it is not freestanding
2: so the money that's raised the tremendous amounts of money that are raised from cbs from espn from your television partners that goes back into the universities to cover the other sports that aren't the basketball and the football like the baseball
1: the soccer the golf is that where that money goes that that's exactly right all the revenue that comes into the NCA, the NCA home office takes off about 4% to run the administration of it. All the rest is distributed to the universities. Now, people think that's a lot of money, and if you add it all up from all the universities, it is a lot of money. But for, say, the Division A schools, the amount of money they get through the NCA because of the basketball TV contracts um, is probably less than 10% on the range of 5 to 7% of their total athletics budget. Dr. Brand, do you have any
2: concern that Congress may pass a new law to make intercollegiate intercollegiate athletics taxable? And if they did, what would the world look like to you?
1: Well, I think if you tried to professionalize all of intercollegiate athletics, it wouldn't work. So could they pull out, for example, men's basketball and football? I think what would happen is that it would turn it into third-rate professional sports, Why would anyone want to watch that then? If I'm going to watch professional sports, I'm going to watch the NFL, which is a darn good league, or I'm going to watch the NBA, I'm not going to watch the minor leagues. The reason why people enjoy college sports so much is because they are part of higher education. The avid college fan sees the sports, whether it's in Notre Dame or Indiana University or whatever institution you pick. George Mason, it's seen as part of the enterprise where those who participate are college students. When they're no longer college students but professionals, then they're in competition with other professional leagues and there's no reason to watch them. So I I think we'd see uh, the demise of college sports as we know it in that case.
2: The NCAA receives about 85% of its revenues from the sale of the TV rights. How much influence do your TV partners, CBS, ESPN, have with scheduling? Because, you know, this year in college football, we see an extra game. With basketball, we're seeing more and more games on the schedule. Do they have any influence in the scheduling of
1: games? No, all our contracts specifically say that the schools make the final decisions when to show the games. Now, there are only so many windows in which games could be shown. And the TV companies, ESPN, CBS, can offer it up and say, you want to have a game on at such and such a time. The school could say no. Some schools prefer to have games during the week, uh, even a football game during the week, so at least once a year they can get on national TV. But the fact of the matter is the decision is always the schools.
2: And then explain to me, I know I talked to to Wally Renfro about this last year, but the liquor advertising, a lot of people are critical because they say, listen, you know, students who, you know, you have the PSAs for don't drink and dry, but then there's some liquor advertising during the games. How much of that do you control or do you control
1: any of it? Well, we do have policies about it, and our members, in fact, just recently uh, reaffirmed our policies and clarified them. The fact of the matter is you cannot show more than one minute per hour of alcohol advertising, and that only includes beer. We don't do hard liquor as, as some uh, uh elsewhere on TV is now being shown. Right. Uh, And the fact of the matter is we do monitor it very carefully. In fact, there have been ads that we would not like let go on the air because we thought they misrepresented the nature of higher education. Now, I concur that on campuses around the country, alcohol abuse is a very serious problem. And we also have a great deal of underage drinking. I certainly knew that as a college president, and it's still the case. Uh, Unfortunately, colleges and universities have a hard time getting control of it. Somehow, I don't believe one minute of advertising while watching the final four is the cause of that on campus.
2: No, I totally agree with you on that. I just think it sends a little bit of a mixed message, but what you just answered is, you know, basically you can only control so much of that. And if you are limiting it to one sixty-second spot, then that sounds like the best you can do. Dr. Brandt, Tell me about sports agents, and and you know we're seeing sports agents really get to athletes at the high school level now, and then they're kind of infiltrating onto college campuses. Uh, you know the Reggie Bush situation last year, other situations that have been high profile. What can the NCAA do to help police that better?
1: Yeah, you know the vast majority of sports agents are uh, good representatives of the of their clients of the athletes and, and work honestly towards those goals. Of, There are experts in the field. But there are also some, uh, a minority, but some uh, unscrupulous sports agents who will try and take advantage of young people. Uh, What the NCAA does is have rules about uh, when individual players can be talking with sports agents. And basically, the answer is uh, not while you're a student. Uh, There are a few little exceptions to that, but that's the basic answer. Um, And I think trying to control the unscrupulous agents is frankly, not just a job for the NCA, but it requires the schools themselves to police their own environments. And it also involves, to some extent, uh, the unions and the uh, management of professional leagues.
2: Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent. I- I've always said I think it's a very tough thing. You know, the coaches and the staff and the athletic directors can only be so many places. You're not babysitting 18 year olds 24 hours a day. So there's a certain level of trust that you hope that they don't
1: get in trouble and that they do the right thing. I think that's exactly right. Probably our most important weapon here is education. Uh, we spend a great deal of time, uh, and the schools spend a great deal of time, helping to educate most, especially the high-profile athletes, about where the dangers are. We even educate their parents. It doesn't mean it always works. Sometimes we do have some unscrupulous agents who take advantage and manipulate parents or young, young men or women. But for, by and large, I think it works reasonably well.
2: Dr. Brown, we have time for one more question. I really enjoy your Mondays with Miles podcast on Apple's iTunes. Tell me about how that idea came about.
1: Well, we have a, a young man uh, at the NCA headquarters who uh, really is tuned into the new means of communication and, and new media. And so uh, his name is Josh Center. And we, we do uh, Mondays with Miles every uh, week. I sit down and talk with him. I try to be candid. And if you're listening to it, you know I am. Uh, it's great fun for me. It's a good mode of communication. And also, because of this new media, it gives the audience a, a direct line to, to reply, and many of them do.
2: No, I think it's terrific. And, uh, again, in this new way of communication, uh, you know, it's being proactive from you, and I commend you for doing that. I appreciate you taking time with me this week. I know you've got a very busy schedule. Guests appearing during our Sports end segment. be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses morton's the steakhouse the best steak anywhere for the mortons nearest you go online to www.mortons.com again dr brand thank you so much for making time i'd love to have you on again in the future
1: thank you brian good to hear from you thank you very much you're listening to sports
2: business radio we'll be back with our final segment and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio.
0: One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business, Radio. Sports Business Radio.
2: My guest is Michael Slide. He's the commissioner of the SEC. He's the coordinator for the BCS. He's been kind enough to join us before. Happy holidays, Michael.
3: Thank you, Brian, and same to you.
2: So, since we spoke last January, Florida has won the BCS National Championship. The Gators also won their second consecutive men's national basketball championship. And the Lady Vols of Tennessee won the women's national basketball championship. Not a bad year for the SEC, I'd say.
3: Oh, you know, Brian, uh, it's one of those great moments in history uh, where uh, we did something unique in winning those three national championships.
1: And in addition,
3: in our league, uh, if you'll allow me to uh, brag a minute, we won five additional national championships. So all in all... We had a you know a very very successful year competitively with eight uh, national championships and and the three you mentioned of course uh, are so unique uh, that it's never been done before.
2: You know you sit atop a conference that I think from top to bottom and across all the sports as you just said it's really the best in America. But success has its price. You know, I was reading recently in USA Today, they had the coaches' salaries listed, and the SEC has the highest average salary for its head college football coaches, about $1.9 million per year. Nick Saban in Alabama is making about $4 million a season. Should we be alarmed that the coaches' salaries have escalated to the levels that they're at right now?
3: Well, I think, uh, I, you know, it's a, it's a good question and a complex one. Uh, first, I think it's important to understand that uh, the marketplace is unfettered to some degree because of the law. You know, In other words, no organization like an NCAA or the SEC or any other conference can step in and try to control coaches' salaries. The last time the NCAA did that, Brian, uh, we had the so-called restricted earnings coaches, and uh, we settled a case for about $53 million. Wow. So, you know, with the, the law is that you can't control. Now, th- that means it's institutional decision-making that governs. And I think each institution uh, has to decide for itself uh, how it's going to compensate its employees. You know, in our part of the world, um, college football is, uh, is, you know, is very, very significant. Um, Last year, we drew 6.5 million people uh, to our games, and we televised somewhere around 75 or 80 percent of our games. And so, uh, you know, the revenue potential there is somewhat significant. I think Miles Brand has said it well when he talks about expenses, including compensation, outstripping uh, in terms of growth, you know, the, the growth rate that an institution experiences, because the actual cost, the actual operations cost of athletics is about 3% of the university's expenses, and that's about the same as it was 15 years ago. But I do understand and have some concern about the relative, you know, the relative comparison of a president's salary to a coach's salary. And I think that's been expressed by all, but the mechanism to control that when you have in, independence uh, among institutions is just not there.
2: And one more question about coaches, and again, I'm sure this comes down to each institution, but you know, it seems like more and more we see not only football coaches, but basketball coaches... Leaving for more lucrative offers. I mean, these coaches are free agents. It's a free nation; they can do whatever they want. But what they've done is, you know, they've sworn the allegiance of some of these recruits who have come to that school because of them. And then the coaches are down the road. Do you think it should be more difficult for coaches to get out of these contracts?
3: Well, again, um, whether I think so or not, sure. Uh, you know, I definitely do think so. However, there really isn't a way in which. Uh, except by contract itself uh, to, to change that. So, when institutions and coaches negotiate contracts, you know, those issues have to be resolved contractually because you, you can't do it uh, organizationally. Now, the one place where we try to deal with this issue straight up is in the National Letter of Intent, where we tell the prospects that once you sign a national letter, You are signing with the institution. And uh, if a coach leaves, you know, that is not uh, a a circumstance that would relieve the student athlete from uh, the national letter. The hope there is, now whether it's naive or not is another matter, but the hope there is is that the prospect will pay a great deal of attention not only to the coach but to the institution itself and make a decision based on the institution.
2: My guest is Michael Slive. He's the commissioner of the SEC. He's the coordinator for the BCS. Michael, last time you were on, we talked about your role as the BCS coordinator. You said it's a rotating role. I think you're in your second of a two-year commitment. Um, so what's next? Uh, have you guys decided who's going to replace you, and when does that person step into the role that you're in right now? Um, they
3: wrote, John Swafford of the ACC will succeed me Brian as the coordinator effective immediately after uh, the January 7th national championship game.
2: You know, I've spoken with many of the decision makers like yourself and I think I figured out the three main reasons for keeping the system the way it is and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. Number 1, the university presidents like the history of the bowl games. Number 2, the presidential oversight committee feels that the current system emphasizes the importance of winning during the regular season. That's what you just mentioned. And then number three, the university presidents really don't want to play games in December when student-athletes are taking their exams. Would you agree with this assessment, and are these concrete things that aren't going to change?
3: Well, you know, um, I don't anticipate, significant, you know, I don't, an, let, let me answer your first part of your question. Okay. I think the first part is, I think those items, that you those criteria or characteristics that you just outlined are correct, um, and uh, the you know the, the value of the regular season, the excitement of the regular season, the playoff element of the regular season, um, the rivalries that, that people do not want to diminish the value of all of that apply, you know it contributes the second part the bowl system it has a long tradition. again, there are people who feel like there are too many you know there are arguments on both sides but but there is one argument that, that really is important to us. That is that. As I look at our league this year, with nine teams going to bowls, if there are a hundred players on a team, that means nine hundred, and maybe closer to a thousand young men are going to have a postseason experience in a community that they they may never have been to, or one in which they've never experienced the culture. And you know that's uh, that's very significant, and it's an opportunity that we that we're trying to make sure we continue to have. And then the academic calendar is just complex. You know, we take we don't play our bowl games until very late in the in the, you know September 28, 29. We have exams in December, and
1: I and I've talked
3: about football staying as a one semester sport because you don't want to take the first two weeks of a new semester and have teams so enmeshed and so visible and in such demand that they can't really get a grip on their academics early in the year. So uh, you know you start out in August, August, September, October, November, December, January. And so the, I think the presidents are just concerned about that. And I think all of us are concerned about that. And uh, so those are, you know, and, and people argue and, and people there you know, we get we I must have I would tell you, Brian, I've got at least two feet a stack, two feet high of proposed models. All in good faith, people mm-hmm. who want to you know, who wanna see something different. But it's very hard to try to put everything together, the only, you know, one of the things I've talked about is maybe the only potential uh, format that would satisfy everybody is is a flexible format that you just change the format every year depending on how the year came out, and you can't do that in in, in realistic terms. So we're all trying to do, you know, it's hard to satisfy everybody, and we're all trying to uh, think about that, and that's why you've seen me say that I've been open-minded and maybe looking at a plus one. Uh, which is, would be that you take the existing, the existing structure and you'd make a couple of games, sort of you know, a uh, play-in towards a, an international championship game, and that's, under, that's being looked at and debated. But uh, that at least fits within the current calendar and structure.
2: So, bottom line, do you see any scenario in the next decade where bowl games in a playoff format, maybe an eight-team or even a 16-team format, could coexist together?
3: Well, you know, you, you well, one can never predict what other people will do. You know, by that time, I will be gone, and a lot of other people will be gone, and
2: My guest is Michael Slive. He's the commissioner of the SEC. He's the coordinator for the BCS. We've got just a few minutes left. Michael, the Sugar Bowl, the BCS National Championship game, they're going to be played in New Orleans. I think it's terrific. Maybe talk about the impact of these games on the New Orleans community as they continue to rebuild.
3: Well, I think it's going to be, Brian, very successful.
2: Last question, Florida Gators quarterback Tim Tebow just became the first sophomore to win the Heisman Trophy. You know, Tebow's obviously super impressive on the field, but i got to tell you, listening to him give his speech and listening to him do interviews, I'm probably more impressed with him off the field and how he conducts himself and his upbringing than I am with what he's done on the field.
3: He's a, he's a very fine young man. Like the SEC achieved a historic first, you know, with throwing for 20, over 20 touchdowns and running for over 20 touchdowns. So, you know, the Heisman voting, uh, Brian, really capped off a great run for the SEC. We had the first two uh, players in the, in the Heisman, and uh, so you couple that with our championships. Um, it's been a, a, you know, it's been one of the, the, the great times for the in the 75-year history of the SEC, and we're celebrating. as stories of character of what we can teach young men and women by competing and I think your description of, of Jim Tebow's presentation certainly uh, uh, is a capstone to what we've been trying to say for a long time
2: well Michael congratulations on all your success Guests appearing during our sports and segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses Morton's a steakhouse the best steak anywhere for the Morton's nearest you go online to mortons.com Happy holidays, Michael. Best of luck with the BCS National Championship and the BCS Bowl games. And I hope to catch up with you in 2008. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much, Michael. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back.
0: The moon is right. The spirit's on. We're here tonight. And that's enough. To...
2: Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training monitoring and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. We are back with our final segment on this edition, the best of sports business radio. Happy New Year. The Yankees have unveiled a plan for cheap or free tickets to exhibition games against the Cubs on April 3rd and 4th that will open the new $1 billion Yankee Stadium. Full season ticket holders will be charged nothing to occupy their designated seats during the exhibitions. While the team will charge twenty-five cents for bleacher seats and a dollar and ten cents for grandstand seats, a rollback to what similar tickets cost when the original Yankee Stadium opened in nineteen twenty-three. Now, Bobby, this is a terrific move. I mean, I can't believe that people can actually go to a game for that inexpensive. It's a good dry run for the people who will be running the new Yankee Stadium, but With all of the uh, favors that the Yankees got from the city of New York, there are some that are saying, hey, they should have just made this a freebie all the way around.
0: Oh, I completely agree. You know, if you have a family of four, and it's not going to cost you, what, five bucks to take them to a game? You know, they're playing the Cubs, great team, but yeah, you're right. From, From what the city gave them, you know both games should have been free and i think maybe even one or two games during the regular season should be free as well
2: and when we talk about what the city of new york gave the yankees they were city issued tax exempt bonds so you know here the yankees are going to be making a lot of money and they have tax exempt bonds that you know they don't have to pay back to the city of new york so you know some people are saying again hey they should have made these free seats but look 25 cents to go to yankees game people better enjoy it because some of the tickets are going to be $2,500 a seat when the real games start.
0: You know, I might even hop on a plane just to go see the game if I only got to pay a quarter to sit in the outfield.
2: Well, I think you and many other people are going to have that same idea. So uh, you might want to get that idea going uh, quickly. All right, thank yous on the show. Thank you again to Dr. Miles Brand and to Michael Sly for joining us way back when. Good to look back on their conversations and maybe learn a little bit more about the NCAA and the BCS. Our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, ProTrade.com, and Evergreen Media Training. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. I'm Brian Berger. Happy New Year. We'll talk to you next week.